0: I feel like I was back in chapel, in seminary, <laughs> saying that a lot, um, because you're surrounded by men who love Christ to an intense level, and we're, they're going out into the world sometimes to go to churches where very few people love Christ to an intense level, and so that, that ability to take the Word of God and begin to sink it deeply into hearts and to increase love for Christ, that's, uh, that is the noble goal of the minister of the gospel. Darren showed me a video a couple of weeks ago by Alistair Begg, just a little three-minute video where he talked about that the spiritual, the measure of the spiritual depth of a church is its Sunday night service. Basically, do they have one? And that got a lot of negative comments online. Well, that's being legalistic and this and that. But I love our Sunday evening service. And you know, 40 years ago, this was normal. Um, We are now abnormal. So praise God for that. That we're we're uh, attempting to grow in the Lord. But uh, it's a it's a very simple axiom. The more of God's word you take in, the faster you're going to be like Christ. It is that simple. So we want to uh, follow in the footsteps of many great churches in generations past. Turn with me to Genesis 11. Genesis 11, we'll begin in verse 27. When we first began introducing the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you may recall that to get this train moving we needed an introductory message to the introductory messages. And in the second introductory message, we examined what we call the theological center of the Pentateuch. Basically, what we said was a three-part statement that God has a central directive through a specific pathway, and he confirms this central directive elsewhere in Scripture. And so I want to return to that just for a moment to give us a context for our text for tonight. The central directive... Genesis 1, through 28, that God is forming a kingdom on earth in which mankind will rule on his behalf and reign with him, that mankind is to rule, to have dominion, to subdue the earth, but mankind sinned, and so God has continued his plan now to redeem mankind from sin. He's pushed forward with his kingdom plan that has never been off track, and so that's the central directive. That's what we're aimed at. The specific pathway to get us to this kingdom is a chosen nation. And this chosen nation was to make God known in the world, to provide the pathway, the means to redemption, specifically through the coming Savior promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And then that central directive is confirmed elsewhere in Scripture. We made observations from Genesis chapter 2 and Psalm 8 in particular concerning the purpose of mankind to rule alongside God in a kingdom on earth. And so Israel would be that chosen nation, that specific pathway, but Israel would also be the first model kingdom that that would not just be the means by which God would make himself known to the world, but also show what a kingdom is supposed to look like. And perhaps the closest that Israel ever came to being obedient to that calling occurred in the days of Solomon when peace reigned in the land and Solomon was a world-famous king who had guests from all over the world to see his great wealth and his wisdom. But Israel is the means by which God will fulfill his kingdom plan. How how has he made himself known through Israel? Well, if you hold a Bible in your hand, these are all Jewish authors. Your Bible is given to you by God through Israel. You might say the Holy Bible brought to you by the Jews. And this is really true. Uh, The Apostle Paul even says in Romans that the Jews have an advantage in that they receive the oracles of God. God didn't visit the people in Madagascar or anywhere else. It was the Jewish people. And so that theme of kingdom, that's been what we've built every message in Genesis around. Because the kingdom of God really uh, entails the bookends of the Bible. Genesis is all about kingdom. That's what we're doing now. But the close of the Bible is all about kingdom. It is the fulfillment of the central directive at the very end, Revelation 22, verse 5, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. A kingdom headed by the king of kings, filled with kings and queens of the earth, all who have trusted Christ as their Savior. And to get us there, God would use Israel, through whom the Savior Jesus Christ would come. And so, really, the rest of the Pentateuch and all of the Old Testament concerns itself with Israel because she is the pathway to fulfilling the decree of God for all time. So, we have thus far examined in Genesis the original kingdom, the failed kingdom, the cleansed kingdom, the expanded kingdom, the setting of the kingdom. And tonight we want to take on a, a pretty hefty chunk of this uh, this text and look at the birth of the kingdom. The birth of the kingdom, the the beginning of God's specific work to form, to create to mold this chosen nation through whom his kingdom would come. And the reason we're taking a rather large chunk tonight is we're following the divine outline of Genesis, the Toledotes, as we talked about before, these are the generations of. And so tonight we move from the grand and epic scenes of creation in the Garden of Eden and the flood and the Tower of Babel to a much more focused story of one man, and his story really forms the heart and the heartbeat of Genesis, the, the saga of Abraham, the birth of the kingdom. Now, remember the setting for the Pentateuch. Now, this is so important for us. I think it helps you understand the, the significance of what's being taught here. Israel has been delivered from Egypt, she has delivered, the, she's endured rather the, the discipline of the Lord for 40 years due to her lack of faith. And now Israel is on the plains of Moab. They're on the banks of the Jordan River right before the God-ordained conquest of Canaan. And they're hearing from the lips of Moses their own story going all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And and we get all those big, grand, epic explanations in the first 11 chapters of Genesis And now Moses comes to the story of the hero of Israel, Abram or Abraham. And as I said last time, I will interchange those terms unapologetically. That's just the way it is. This is the one whom they say, this is the father of our nation. He is the hero. And he heads the very famous patriarchal list used so often in Scripture, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that trio is, is so famous in our Bible. So our plan for tonight is I just want to do kind of an aerial view of the saga of Abraham. And then I want to suggest three major themes that I think will be instructive to us, and they were instructive to Israel to help us understand the birth of the kingdom. But we need to understand the story first. If I had the time, we would just read all 15 of these chapters, but we don't have time to do that. So we're going to just kind of touch some mountaintops. So get your fingers warmed up a little bit here. We'll start in chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. And so this begins the saga of Abraham. God calls Abram while he and his father Terah are still in Ur of the Chaldeans. Both of them were pagan idol worshipers. They are likely followers of the local moon god, Nanu or Nano. God called Abram to leave his home and to go to Canaan, which God would give to his descendants. Abram's brother Haran or Haran had already died, so Abram was given charge of his nephew Lot, and they set out for Canaan. Abram arrived in Canaan. Abram built an altar to the Lord commemorating the promise that God made to give this land to him. Chapter 12, verse 10 Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Abram had two things that could be a liability in the very dangerous ancient Near East. He had wealth and he had a pretty wife. And either or both of those things could get you killed. And so he told Sarai, later to be renamed Sarah, to say, say that you're my sister. And technically it was true because they were, they were half siblings. And so as his sister, she got the attention of Pharaoh and was taken home with him. But God intervened and rescued Abram, rescued Sarai. And now in chapter 13, verse 1, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. By now, both of them had acquired great wealth, meaning that there were too many flocks to share one piece of land. There, there was just too many of them with their servants and, and their flocks. And so Abram and Lot parted ways. Lot went to the well-watered southern area of the Jordan Valley in the vicinity of Zoar and Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abram settled at the Oaks of Mamre, which is about 20 miles southwest of the future city of of, uh, Jerusalem. But shortly, the region found itself in a civil war. The region was ruled by uh, kings in city-states. And so you had a, a city that had its own king. And five of these kings had been paying tribute to one other king who also had three king partners. So you had five kings paying tribute essentially to four kings. And after about a dozen years, five kings said, that's enough. And they rebelled. And so the four kings and the five kings went to war. The the four kings, who were the ones receiving the tribute, were eventually victorious over the five kings. And those five kings, by the way, included the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as the four kings, the oppressive ones, were leaving the area after winning a, a great battle... They took people, they took possessions with them, as was the the custom of the time. But included in those people and possessions were Abram's nephew Lot, his family, and all of his wealth, everything that he had. And so Abram raised up his personal security force of 318 men, trained men, all born in his household. And he personally defeated this army of five kings and rescued Lot, rescued his family, rescued all of his stuff. And in the course of time also provided security in that region for the foreseeable future Abram met with the mysterious king of Salem Melchizedek and received a blessing from God and Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything he had recovered as an offering unto the Lord by the way the king of Sodom was do I need to switch over or we it magically came back I love that I have no idea how these things work so if you look ahead to what's going to happen with Sodom and Gomorrah, it's, it's very significant that Abram said, I don't really want anything to do with you, king of Sodom. Chapter 15, verse 1. We get another interesting and important interaction between the Lord and Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, why would the Lord tell him not to fear? Because what had Abram just done? He had just gone and spanked four whole kings. And then he goes away. That's not going to be taken lightly. And so now he could expect retribution, which never came, but he would have every right to be afraid. But in this section, in chapter 15, God reaffirmed his covenant with Abram. He ratified this covenant by means of a ceremony in which God promised to take full 100% responsibility to make the covenant promises happen. But Abram and Sarai grew impatient with waiting for a promised son to be born. They'd waited a decade already. And so Sarai gave Abram, according to custom, her maidservant Hagar to have a child by her. Two things resulted. The boy Ishmael resulted and horrible family conflict resulted. Fast forward 13 years to chapter 17, Chapter 17 verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now God changes Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah and gives him now the sign of the covenant, circumcision. This is a reminder of belonging to God through Abraham. That if you, if you belong to God under the auspices of the Abrahamic covenant, then you will be circumcised. And that was the sign given. But now God gives a specific timeline for the promised son. There's not a, there's not a someday your seed will be promulgated. It is now, a year from now, you'll have a son and his name is to be named Isaac. This was to happen when Abraham was 100 And Sarah was 90. So this would truly be a miracle child. Chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Why did he bow himself to the earth? Because Abram saw or knew in some fashion that of these three men... Two of them were angels, and one of them was a physical appearance of the Lord himself. This visit happens essentially right after the promise given in chapter 17. The promise is renewed again, and God now reveals to Abraham that he's about to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham famously inquires of God as to how many righteous people had to be living in Sodom before God would relent. Apparently, ten was the minimum. There were not ten righteous people in Sodom, so the two angels with the Lord went to Sodom to find Lot. They found Lot, they warned him sternly that the city was about to be destroyed, and they called him to get his family to run, but Lot wasn't comprehending the seriousness of of this situation. Even by the way after having personally witnessed the disgusting sexual immorality of the men of the city who had tried to come and sexually violate the two angels, the two visitors, And so finally, these two angels had to literally just physically grab Lot, his wife, and their two daughters and make them run. But Lot's wife loved the sin of the city. She lagged behind because she didn't want to leave. And the text says she looked back. And I've told you before that it means essentially she went back. And so she was there, unfortunately, when the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from heaven. Lot and his daughters lived in the nearby hills, and his daughters were impatient to have children who would guarantee their future provision. And so they got their father drunk and impregnated themselves by him, giving birth to sons who would be the fathers of the Moabite peoples and the Ammonite peoples. in chapter 20, verse 1, we have more international relations. Chapter 20, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar, The king of this region was called Abimelech. Abimelech isn't a name. It's a title like Pharaoh. And Abraham pulled the same stunt he had in Egypt, telling Sarah to call herself his sister. And again, God intervened and saved them. And now the time came for the great promise, 25 years in the making to be fulfilled. Chapter 21, verse 1, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And now the child Ishmael, there's no place for him anymore. And so Abraham, with the Lord's blessing, sent Hagar and her son Ishmael to the wilderness where God himself would care for them. Abimelech enters the scene once again in a dispute over a well which Abraham had dug by Abimelech's men, had taken over. The conflict is thankfully resolved peacefully. But now a terrible and a massive trial would be brought to Abraham by God himself. In verse 22, chapter 22, rather. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you, Abraham was faithful to the test, getting right to the brink of sacrificing Isaac, likely a a teenager at this point. God stopped Abraham from completing the sacrifice, and this was evidence that Abraham was completely a man of faith. His loyalty and his obedience to the Lord were unquestionable. And then sadly, in chapter 23, we have the epitaph of Sarah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. I would imagine he mourned and wept. From the time they left Ur the Chaldeans, they had now been married 62 years. And that doesn't count the decades of marriage prior to that. I don't think words can can really illustrate properly the, the depth of connection that they would have had. So Abram bought land there in Canaan, and he buried his wife. In chapter 24, Now Abram was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abram in all things. And now you have this long chapter chapter 24 of 67 verses that tells the story of the concern that Abraham had with carrying on his chosen line through Isaac Isaac was 37 by the time his mother died and still unmarried and so Abraham sent his head servant back to his homeland to find a wife for Isaac from among his father's family the very usual ancient Near East tradition God providentially and uniquely led this servant exactly to the singular girl and the single girl, incidentally, that God had in mind for Isaac. This is Rebekah, the granddaughter of Abraham's brother Nahor. And now we begin setting up for the next phase of kingdom development. Look at the very last verse of chapter 24, verse 67 were setting up for the development of the kingdom. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Chapter 25, verse 1. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. And in his old age Abraham fathered more sons and saw his grandsons as well, But they would potentially be a threat to the promised son, Isaac. And so he sent them away to the east with gifts. And apparently he had sons from concubines as well. And they were sent away with gifts. It's unclear as to whether Keturah's sons and the concubine's sons were sent away. But very likely that all of them were sent away. So that, so that Isaac alone would have claim to the possessions and so forth of Abraham. And finally we get to chapter 25 verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Malchpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer le So that's the, the saga of Abraham. That's the, the, the story that really is the heartbeat of Genesis. This is what the first 11 chapters are, are aiming for. We have 11 chapters on big things like creation and the flood and, and the fall and the Tower of Babel, and then 15 chapters just on Abraham. So that tells you how important... He is. And so what I want to do is just highlight three theological themes. I think would be they were instructive to Israel concerning the birth point of the kingdom on earth, the kingdom yet to come. But I believe they'll be instructive to us as well. And so we'll skip around a little bit here. Probably uh, be too hard for you to keep up. So you might note some references if that's helpful to you. So three themes I just want to simply look at. The first one I'll call the nature of Abraham. The nature of Abraham And I'll divide the nature of Abraham into two sub thoughts. The first one is his great faith. His great faith. While Abraham was still in the Ur of the Chaldeans in the comfort of his established household, his way of life, his family business, God told him in Genesis twelve, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this is the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. It will be repeated in various forms in four more chapters of Genesis Genesis fifteen verse six looks back at this time in remembrance of Abraham's response. So you almost could insert Genesis fifteen six right after Genesis twelve uh, verses one and two. Genesis fifteen six says, "And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness." By the way, an Old Testament example of justification—what we talked about this morning. If somebody asks you, how were, people saved? how were people saved in the New Testament? You say, by faith alone, we are justified. How were people saved in the Old Testament? By faith alone, they were justified. It's the same answer. He had the righteousness of God credited to him by faith. But think about what God told him. He said, A, leave everything that you know. B, I'll make you into a great nation. He didn't say, I want you to move one state away or I want you to move across town and I'll bless your bank account or I'll give you a promotion. This is a whole lifestyle change. He said, I'm gonna give you a nation and then I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you and in you, all the families, literally the clans, the family groups of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, God just promised to do more for him than God has ever done for any human being in history, and what was Abraham's response? I, I think my response would have been, "Okay, what's the punchline? You know, big, big joke, haha." Chapter twelve, verse four. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. He believed him, and you think about this: we have a we have a, a bookstore, and part of the reason for the bookstore is for you to read books to be encouraged by other saints to bolster your faith. He didn't have any examples; he just had his faith. He he couldn't read a book on faith. Just believe the Lord. And so in chapter 12, verse 7, Abram was passing through the land of Canaan and the Lord appeared to him and said to your offspring, I will give this land. Abram didn't question this. He built an altar there to worship the Lord. And it was in a sense a sign that says, I believe you. And he left a monument which said, we'll be back when we're a nation and we'll come back and take what God just gave to me. Hebrews chapter 11, of course, confirms for us the great faith of Abraham because of his obedience to go where God told him to do what God commanded him to do. In Genesis 18, God announced to Abraham his intention to destroy the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham had family there in Sodom. He had Lot and his family, so he interceded with the Lord boldly, with with great faith. And he says, suppose there are 50 righteous people there. And then Abraham has the audacity to tell God his own theology. He says, you know, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He's giving God a theology lesson. But essentially what he's doing is saying, you are a just and a gracious God, and certainly you would never punish the righteous with the wicked, would you? And then he goes on, suppose there are 40. I am but dust. Suppose there are 30. Please excuse me. Suppose there are 20. Don't kill me. Suppose there are 10. And Abraham met the Lord with request after request after request. As it turns out, there were only three people worth saving. Three who would obey the warning to flee the city. Lot and his daughters, Lot's wife, chose to go back. What great faith he showed. And of course Genesis 22 said by more than one commentator to be the greatest act of faith ever recorded in Scripture. God told Abraham to take the child of promise, the child through whom the Messiah Savior was to come, to whom the, through whom the kingdom nation was to come, and to sacrifice him, to kill him. And Abraham obeyed. He went all the way to the point of nearly killing Isaac with a knife, but the Lord stopped him. And it's only in the book of Hebrews from a, a New Testament perspective do we get the divine commentary on what Abraham was actually thinking. Why he would obey the Lord to kill his only son of promise. Hebrews eleven nineteen 19 tells us that Abraham reasoned in his mind that if Isaac was the child of promise and that if God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, quote, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Now, you and I, if you've grown up in the church or if you've been at Grace Bible Church even for any length of time, you've heard of the concept of resurrection. You've heard me teach that there are about 9, 10, 11, or 12 resurrections, depending on how you count, recorded in Scripture. We've talked about the resurrection of Christ. That's our theme next week. This was a man who had never heard of or seen or witnessed resurrection of any kind, and yet... The logic of his faith said if God promised that this son would be the promised son through whom a nation would come, and he says to kill him, then the only option is that God will raise him from the dead. That was his only option. So what a, what a great man of faith, and certainly as Israel on the plains of Moab heard these stories from Moses, I, I'm sure they were proud. I'm sure they were excited. Yes, this is the father of our nation. But the Genesis account of Abraham is a tell-all biography. It is not sanitized because not only did Abraham have great faith, but the other segment of the nature of Abraham is his great failure. His great failure. Canaan came under a famine. So Abraham took his wife and servants and possessions and went to Egypt to live for a while. Sarah was beautiful, and Abraham feared that he would be killed for her, so he used deception and human intrigue and lying to protect himself, telling Sarah to claim to be his sister. He wasn't protected by his deception. He was protected by the Lord. The Lord protected him. But the sad commentary is that Abraham trusted himself more than he trusted the God who had made a covenant with him. And it's very interesting that that concept or that that situation in Egypt comes right after the Abrahamic covenant is given in Genesis 12. It's like the first thing he did was to go out and not trust the Lord. After receiving multiple promises from the Lord that a child of promise would be provided, years went by with Sarah still not getting pregnant. And so Sarah told her husband, according to ancient Near Eastern custom, to Have a child with her maidservant, Hagar, and the child would then be Sarah's. And, big mistake, chapter 16, verse 2, And Abram listened to the voice of his wife. Hagar conceived a son, but this just caused all kinds of family strife. Big surprise to everyone. Sarah was harsh and cruel to Hagar because Hagar now had contempt for Sarah for any number of reasons. I just had this child and you're going to take him. And thus, because Abraham didn't wait on the Lord, he caused a big family mess. He failed. In chapter 17, when God said to Abraham that by Sarah, he would have a son at the age of 90. Sarah would, have a, would be 90. Abraham would be 100. Abraham did two reprehensible acts. First of all, he fell on his face in worship, but it was false worship because he was laughing inwardly at the word of the Lord. He was laughing at the idea that the Lord would give them a baby boy. And the second reprehensible thing he did was he questioned God's plan and dared to offer an alternative. He said, how about Ishmael, my child with Hagar? I don't like your plan, God. Why don't we go with mine? I have a pretty good idea. How about this? Reprehensible. And in yet another disappointment, Abraham went to the region of Gerar in the western Negev and pulled the same stunt he did in Egypt, telling Sarah to claim to be a sister. Again, God came to his rescue and kept Abraham safe. But again, Abraham trusted his own deception, his own devices, more than he trusted the Lord. And you would think he would have learned, but he hadn't learned. And so the Israelite, hearing the saga of the father of their nation, hears a mixed story. Abraham was a man of great faith whom they should emulate, a man who left what was familiar to him to go to Canaan just like they were doing. But he was also a man of great failures who had to rely on the continued grace of God, a man who acted in fear at times just like Israel had done when they hadn't trusted the Lord 40 years earlier when they sent spies into Canaan. And in Jesus' day, it was precisely this balance which the prideful leadership of Israel forgot they believed themselves favored by God solely based on their DNA because they were physical descendants of Abraham. And they would proclaim proudly, Abraham is our father. Well, John the Baptist poked a hole in that really quickly. Luke 3, verse 8, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, don't think you're special because of your DNA. Jesus responded to the same pride. John chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father, that is the devil. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to him them, and this is my translation, Really? If you were Abraham's kids, you would act like him. Because he was a man of faith. You're not. In other words, Abraham had a true, genuine, internal reality of faith. Yes, he failed over and over again, but he loved the Lord, and he was justified by the Lord. In fact, the Apostle Paul, without erasing the ethnic distinction between Jew and Gentile, he said in Galatians 3 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. What does it mean to be a son of Abraham? It means to have the same faith that he had. And so Abraham, of course, is a great example to us of faith. I mean, Hebrews chapter 11 is practically centered on him. He is the highlight of that hall of faith as one who believed God for great and mighty things that were absolutely unprecedented. But the real value of Abraham to us is that he reminds us of God's favor, his gracious kindness to set his love on whomever he wishes and to stay true to that love. And so Israel is hearing the unvarnished truth. Yes, Abraham, man of great faith. And really, he lied again about Sarah? And she's a lot older now? This just doesn't make sense. And so they see that to receive the grace of God really is their great gift. Abraham is a great man. There is no doubt about that. But he needed grace just like anybody else does. Which brings us to another theme that would instruct Israel concerning the birth point of the kingdom of God on earth. They've seen the nature of Abraham, probably more importantly. How about the nature of God? The nature of God. There's so much that could be said about how God reveals his character in these chapters. I want to just bullet point a number of character qualities that is revealed about God. They're revealed about God here. And then I want to just focus in on one in particular. I think it's important for us to understand. I'll just bullet point some of these. First of all, he is the God of decrees. The God of decrees. He creates and dictates plans which never fail. He decreed a kingdom plan all the way back in Genesis 1, and that plan is marching forward through Abraham. Sin isn't going to stop it. The devil isn't going to stop it. Adam and Eve's rebellion isn't going to stop it. The flood isn't going to stop it. Tower of Babel isn't going to stop it. Terah and Abram being moon god worshipers isn't going to stop it. He is a God who, when he makes a decree, it will happen. He's the God of knowledge. The God of knowledge, He knows all things, which enables Him to act perfectly on all things. God knew that Abraham deceived Pharaoh and deceived Abimelech, and He acted accordingly. God wasn't fooled. Abraham didn't pull one over on God because He's the God of knowledge. Not only is the God of decrees and the God of knowledge put those two together, and He is the God of foreknowledge. He's the God of foreknowledge. His perfect decree intertwined with his knowledge is in foreknowledge is actively knowing what he'll do in the future. Any idea that God looks ahead to the future to passively see what's going to happen is ridiculous. The, the only thing that, that makes it difficult for us to understand this is that we're bound by time and God is not. He's already, in his mind, done everything. It's it's finished. It's completed. That is his foreknowledge. He is the God of sovereign supremacy. He's the God of sovereign supremacy. And I'm mixing two concepts here on purpose. He shows his supremacy, his authority, over the kings who kidnapped Lot and his family, over the specific Canaanite peoples listed in chapter 15, who will forfeit Canaan into God's people. He is supreme over the womb of Sarah, over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, over the closed wombs of Abimelech's family in chapter 20. And he shows his sovereignty in the providential choice of Rebekah as Isaac's wife. If you read chapter 24, it's just this epic of the sovereignty of God. God laid Abraham's servant to exactly the young woman he'd already picked out. So why, why do these two go together? God's sovereignty is the exercise of His supremacy. It's it's more than just saying, I am supreme. His sovereignty proves it. Because He does as He wishes and He reacts to no one. All things happen according to His plan. Can I put it this way? God has never improvised. He's never improvised. He is the unchangeable God. He is the unchangeable God. When Abraham said, how about my son Ishmael? Why don't we just go with him? God didn't say, hey, you know, that's actually not a bad idea. That's not, that's not too bad. There's some pros and cons to it, but we could consider that. He didn't say that. He's utterly unchangeable because change would imply that he requires improvement or that he requires adjustment, and God need never do either of those. We see that he's the God of holiness. He's the God of holiness. He's completely transcendent. He's above his creation And as such, he is completely pure. God is the definition of holiness. When Sodom and Gomorrah were overrun by sexual immorality and affront to God's design for marriage between a man and a woman, his holiness demanded that he separate himself from those cities. And he didn't just close the heavenly embassy in Sodom and Gomorrah. He just destroyed the cities with impunity because he's able to do that, because he's holy. And speaking of which, he's the God of power. He's the God of power. It's his power which carries out his divine decrees. The power to destroy cities, to close and open wombs, to defeat his enemies, to penetrate the heart of a moon god-worshipping man named Abram. And he's a God of patience. A God of patience. We've detailed the worst failures of Abraham. He lied to kings to protect himself. He tried to implement God's plan for a son his own way. He gave into his wife when he shouldn't have. He caused massive family problems. He had a son who had to be banished from his camp. And yet God never wavered because God never throws away his elect. He's patient. Those he's forgiven and placed his love upon will always have his forgiveness, always have his love. Now that's just a short list of how God clearly shows his own character in these chapters. But I'd like to focus intently on one particular attribute of God, and that is his faithfulness. His faithfulness. He is a promise-keeping God. In God's covenant promises to Abraham, there are various ways to categorize his promises to Abraham. We'll pick several of these promises to highlight, and I'll categorize them in five ways. First of all, a seed, a son through whom would come a nation. So we'll call that category the seed and nation category, that promise. Second category, we'll just call the land category, Yes, an actual plot of land in the Middle East. Some feel that this is symbolic of the greater invisible kingdom. Uh, Those of our covenant theology brothers and sisters, I would be really hesitant to tell the Israelis today who are fighting for their national survival that their land is just a symbol. I I wouldn't want to say that to to their faces. So land is a promise, real live land, dirt. Third promise we could say is blessing on those who side with Abraham. A fourth promise, a curse on those who do not side with Abraham. And then the fifth promise, a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So I just make this list here of the seed nation, the land, blessing on those who side with Abraham, curse on those who do not side with Abraham, and blessing to all the nations of the earth. Let's test how faithful is God just even in this text to these promises initially made right at the beginning of this section of Genesis, right at the beginning of the saga of Abraham. Well, let's go through them. Is he faithful to his promise of a seed and nation? Well, we have obviously the miraculous birth of Isaac in chapter 21. We have the sparing of Isaac in chapter 22 just to make sure everyone knows that the coming nation is born of God and not because of Abraham's great virility or his power or his influence. In chapter 15, God told Abraham that the nation which comes from him would be oppressed Four hundred years, and of course that's the the slavery time of slavery in Egypt, but that they would be rescued. And now, yes, initially that's bad news, but that's sort of like being told now when the shipment of free gold arrives at your house, it's really going to strain your back when you unload it. Oh, it's going to strain my back. Wait a minute. And so this is a promise of a, of a nation to come. Is he faithful to Seoden nation? Yes. Is God faithful to give Abraham the promised land, to the land promises? Oh, this one is all over the place. Abraham himself will live in tents his whole life. He won't be part of the conquest, which is still 600 years or so away. But we do see the seeds of God's faithfulness here. In Genesis 12, Abraham built an altar at Bethel because God told him this land would belong to Abraham's offspring. So there's a little tiny plot of land that essentially is waving a little tiny Israelite flag, saying, we'll be back, give us 600 years. When Abraham and Lot had to separate because of their great possessions and flocks, Genesis 13 says that, quote, Abram settled in the land of Canaan. He didn't own any land, but he's hanging out there as if to say, hey guys, it's not mine now, but just give me a little time. Abraham was blessed by the ancient, mysterious king of Salem, Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. Melchizedek was king of Salem, which would later be renamed Jerusalem. When Abraham made a treaty with Abimelech, Abimelech, his second interaction with him in chapter 21, and you kind of wonder, why is this... Weird little treaty in here that's just over a well that was dug and figuring out who owns the well. Why is that there? Well, Abimelech was the king of the Philistines. And Abram got a well back that Abimelech's men had seized. And to commemorate this time, Abram planted a tamarisk tree. And by the way, in this area, there are tamarisk tamarisk trees all over the place now. And he planted this tamarisk tree specifically at Beersheba, Now, why is that important? About 20 times, the Old Testament uses a very quick reference to the northern and southern borders of Israel. And this is the phrase, from Dan, that's in the north, to Beersheba in the south. We we would say from Canada to Mexico. That's how we define our space, from Dan to Beersheba. And so, there's a tree planted, essentially, at the southern border. Back when Abram chased these four kings... North, and got Lot and all of his possessions back. You know how far Abram and his army drove these four kings? It says that in the text that they drove them to Dan. They drove the kings out to the farthest northern boundary and he planted a tree at the farthest southern boundary. When his wife of so many decades died, Abraham arranged to bury Sarah on the only plot of land he ever owned After God called him out of Ur so many decades before, Abram bought property in Canaan near what would be Hebron, about 19 or 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And not only would Sarah be buried there, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their wives. And And you can go to those tombs today. When the patriarchs are resurrected someday, they'll already be home. They'll be home. Is God faithful to the land promises? Absolutely, we already see it. Is God faithful to bless those who side with Abram? Who side with Abraham? God said in Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you. Well, we think of Lot. He was Abraham's nephew, given into Abraham's charge because of the death of his own father. Chapter 13, verse 5 records that Lot had grown in great wealth. Why? It says, quote, because he went with Abram. Because he was with him. And he was caught in that regional civil war, and Lot was kidnapped. But Abraham took his personal army went and rescued Lot. And later on, Abraham interceded to the Lord on behalf of any righteous person living in Sodom, of whom Lot was one, and God spared him. But the reason wasn't because of Lot. Chapter 19, verse 29 says, God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot. And Lot saying, I'm with Abraham. God says, great, then I'm going to bless you. Abraham had gone to Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, to conceive a son, Ishmael. And Hagar didn't ask for this, and Ishmael certainly didn't ask to be the unchosen son. But in chapter 21, God promised to bless Ishmael also. And the reason is because he is Abraham's offspring. Because he, is, he belongs to you. So is God faithful to bless those who bless him? Absolutely. Is God faithful to curse those who do not side with Abraham? God promised Abraham, him who dishonors you, I will curse. In Egypt, when Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife, Sarah was taken into Pharaoh's house uh, thinking that she was available. But God afflicted Pharaoh and his house, quote, with great plagues. Does that sound familiar for the future? It was sort of a portent of things to come. Why? Quote, because of Sarah. During a civil war, fought over the tribute from one kingdom to another. The four kings made the mistake of kidnapping Lot, Abraham's nephew. Abraham pursued them, attacked them, won a decisive battle, rescued Lot, all of his possessions. He came and got him. In chapter 15, God told Abraham that, His descendants would be afflicted 400 years, quote, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions, referring, of course, to the Exodus. Why was God going to bless them? Because they were associated with Abraham. Why was God going to curse Egypt? Because they were cursing Abraham and his descendants. Chapter 20, Abraham lied to Abimelech about Sarah being his wife, so Abimelech took Sarah to be his own God appeared to Abimelech in a dream and he got right to the point. Quote, Behold, you are a dead man. I love that. That's one of the most direct statements in the Bible. Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken. And the Hebrew here is Abimelech went, whoa, hang on a minute. He backed off really, really quickly. He told Abraham, "Hey, hey, pick the best of my land. You can settle in it. And here's a thousand pieces of silver. And here are sheep and oxen and male and female servants. And so, Abraham lies, and he walks away with wealth. How does that work? Because God promised to curse those who curse him. And is God faithful to make Abraham a blessing to all the nations? Chapter 17, when God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham, he renamed Abram, Abraham, father of nations. And he told Abraham, "'You shall be the father of a multitude of nations.'" When Ishmael was born to Hagar, God told Abraham, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman because he is your offspring. And after the death of Sarah, Abraham took another wife who gave him six more sons, who gave him many grandsons who would form other peoples as well. He sent them east because Isaac was the son of promise, but he sent them away with many, many gifts. And the story of Isaac of Abraham's other sons is not finished. In fact, we'll see that story next time. And of course, we're part of God's blessing on the nation since it was Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ, who saved us from our sin. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, Galatians 3 7 says that all who have faith in Christ are sons of Abraham. And so to say, I am associated with Abraham is to say, I have had faith in his descendant, Jesus Christ. Is God faithful? Every promise God made to Abraham was already being fulfilled just up through chapter 25 in demonstration of God's utter and dependable faithfulness. What a covenant-keeping God we serve. And so Israel, on the banks of the Jordan River, they've received the teaching of Moses, these great truths about Abraham, great truths about the nature of God. There's one more theme that would instruct Israel concerning the birth point of the kingdom of God on earth nature of Abraham, nature of God. Most importantly, the nature of the coming king. The nature of the coming king. Genesis 3.15 promised that a savior was coming to rid the world of sin. One who would perfectly fulfill the mandate of kingly rule on the earth. In chapters 12 through 25, we get shadows and glimpses and shades. Plus a couple of face-to-face meetings with this future king. That we know as the Lord Jesus Christ in fact, we could build a short profile of this coming king from these chapters alone. We could build a Christology just from chapters 12 through 25. So let's build a quick Christology. He is a priestly king. He's a priestly king. A priest intercedes to God on behalf of mankind and intercedes to mankind on behalf of God. Abraham himself was very kinglike in many ways, a, a small model of a coming king. He had his own army. He interacted with kings. He conquered kings. He was in many ways a king without a land. He rescued Lot, and this was a very priestly act in that he interceded on behalf of his nephew, on behalf of one of his own who was then able to save himself. We also see the mysterious king of Salem, Melchizedek. He was the king of what would be Jerusalem. He was also called a priest of God most high. Melchizedek is mentioned in the book of Hebrews eight times, all in reference to be the model, to being the model after which the true high priest, Jesus Christ, is described. Prophetically, Psalm 110 and in echo of this, Hebrews 5 declares Jesus to be, quote, a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Melchizedekian priesthood has precisely two members, Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. And that's a whole study in and of itself, but suffice to say that Christ, of course, came as the final and permanent member of this priesthood. That Christ is the great high priest who stood between us and God to make peace with God on our behalf. If you recall, the very first king of Israel, King Saul, he committed a horrible sin. He was crowned king. But he took it upon himself because Samuel didn't come when he thought he should come. Saul took it upon himself to also act as priest and to offer sacrifices to God. He took it upon himself to be a king and priest. And Samuel came and said, no, 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 no. In fact, your kingdom is taken from you. Why is this? Because ultimately there is only one man who will be the king and priest. That is Jesus Christ. We could keep building the Christology This coming king is a righteous judge. He's a righteous judge. Three men visited Abraham in Genesis 18. The text identifies one of the men as the Lord, Yahweh in Hebrew. Later we find out that the two other men are angels of God sent for the specific mission of getting Lot's family out of Sodom. This physical appearance to Abraham must be what we call a Christophany a pre-Bethlehem appearance of Jesus Christ on earth to communicate a specific message or to carry out a specific mission related to his people. Why would we call this a Christophany? Well, the Gospel of John chapter 1 calls Jesus Christ God in the flesh. He is the material, physical manifestation of God. And so a Christophany should be understood as an appearance of the second member of the Trinity pre-Bethlehem in his appearance in his appearance to Abraham the Lord acts as judge he acts as executioner of the wicked men of Sodom and Gomorrah the reason because of the outcry that has come to me he says they have offended me god the righteous judge and you might say well who destroyed sodom and gomorrah according to genesis 19 jesus did There's a third aspect of his, our Christology we could build here. He's a merciful Savior. He's a merciful Savior. A person called the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar in Genesis 16 and spoke from heaven to Hagar in Genesis 21 that he would take care of her, he would take care of her son. He's called the angel of the Lord simply because he's acting as God's messenger. That's what angel means. Angel isn't always a technical term for a heavenly being created by God. Revelation 2 and 3 speaks of the angels of the churches. He's speaking of the leaders, the human leaders. So angel is a messenger. This angel appears in Genesis four times. He appears in Exodus, Numbers, and three times in the book of Judges. And if you put together a, a composite of all the interactions that people have with the angel of the Lord, you, you see this. He's addressed as God. He claims to be God. He speaks only as God could speak. He is worshipped as God and he exercises the divine attributes of God. And in this case, the angel of the Lord exercises great mercy in saving Hagar and Ishmael and even promising, I'll make him into a whole nation with 12 princes Now, why don't we know him as the angel of the Lord? Well, we don't know him as the angel of the Lord because after Matthew 1, verse 1, the angel of the Lord never appears again because we know him as Jesus. And so we know his name. We know his identity. He is a merciful Savior. And finally, he's a substitute sacrifice. He's a substitute sacrifice. We hear from the angel of the Lord once again in Genesis 22 when Abraham is ready to strike his son Isaac at God's command. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And he commanded him, lay down your knife. Don't sacrifice your son. And the Lord provided a different sacrifice, the ram caught in the thicket. And Abraham gave a name to that place. He named it, The Lord Will Provide. It came to have a nickname, a longer nickname, On the Mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Future tense, what shall be provided? A substitute sacrifice. The sacrifice of Isaac happened essentially on the same geographic spot as the cross of Christ. And so, of course, he is the substitute. The outline and the shadow of the coming king, right in these chapters, he's a priestly king, a righteous judge, a merciful savior, a substitute sacrifice. Well, the saga of Abraham is a major piece of the redemptive plan of God to give birth to his chosen nation, through whom all the nations will be blessed. Abraham is mentioned by name in Scripture 312 times, and if you're counting, 62 times as Abram and 250 times as Abraham. He's mentioned 75 times in the New Testament. He's named in the very first verse of our New Testament, right alongside Jesus Christ. And by the way, by faith, Abraham knew Christ. He knew him. John eight fifty-six. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham is held up in the book of Romans and Galatians as the example of being saved by faith, not by works. He's held up in James chapter 2 as proving his faith by his good works. Not works that create salvation, but works as a result of salvation. And Jesus speaks of Abraham seated at the banquet table of God in Matthew Eight, and as the one who receives the faithful into heaven. Not bad for a former moon god worshiper to go that far. All because God called this pagan, by grace, to birth a kingdom of which you are invited to participate. So we ought to thank the Lord for his faithfulness to Abraham because we are the recipients of that covenant even today. Amen? Thank you, Father, for this uh, epic piece of scripture it, it it is tremendous it's certainly too much to take in even one evening and we've just hit a couple of highlights but lord i pray that as these precious ones here who love you as they spend their time in the bible and and of the 312 times they see abram abraham mentioned i pray lord that at every mention of his name we would be compelled to breathe a prayer of thanks for your graciousness to a moon god worshiper who would become the father of the nation who would give birth to our Savior who would die on the cross so that the Holy Spirit would come after his resurrection and convict our hearts and regenerate us that we might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all the way back, that these are the generations of terror, how excited we should be, Lord, that you were working out your plan of salvation even for us all the way back in those ancient times. We bless you and we thank you in Christ's name, amen.